Can you imagine what it feels like to be a Canadian soccer player as Peter Pendergast blows the whistle? It's official. Canada 2000 Gold Cup champions. How does that sound? You're listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Peter Galindo and Thomas Neff. Yes, it's episode 31 of the Northern Football Podcast. Peter Galindo here with you for another post-game show after Canada's nil-nil draw with Jamaica. There will be analysis on the match as well as a preview for what is now a big game against Panama on Wednesday, given the circumstances. But um, unfortunately, life and, and work commitments couldn't allow Thomas Neff to join me this time. He tried desperately to make it work, but wasn't available in the end. So I have brought in a replacement call-up, as it were. The the first alternate on my list immediately texted him once I I was uh, confirmed that Thomas couldn't come on. It is Alexander Gange Ruzik from Between the Sticks and the Third Sub Podcast. How's it going, dude? Thanks for doing this on such short notice. Is literally like a 20 30 minute notice here well i'm just hoping to bring a maybe we'll say for a reference wise i'll be a zachary brogiar against aruba <laughs> if you're gonna go all the way back to that straight yeah, out yeah. of the the taxi squad but uh happy to join and talk canada soccer with you always a pleasure and uh yeah let's let's dive into this fantastic indeed yes uh, now i know how john herdman feels i suppose dealing with with these things not really at all that's just a terrible joke um a reminder to the listeners that the northern football podcast is partnered with northern tribune for all of your canadian soccer news and wants head to northerntribune.ca and follow them on twitter at north tribune also, please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If your platform of choice is Apple, why not leave us a rating and review? If you have the time, let us know your honest thoughts about the show. Uh, so yeah, as mentioned, Jamaica nil, Canada nil on Sunday night on the on what has been a long weekend in Canada. And it was a bit of a long game in a lot of ways, Alex, for those of us watching and I'm sure for the players on the pitch. Um, thanks to other results in the region, that drops Canada to fourth, one point behind Panama, to make things even more intriguing for Wednesday. Costa Rica is now one point behind Canada in fifth after coming from behind to beat El Salvador. Before we go any further into that Panama game, uh, let's go back to Sunday afternoon in Kingston. We saw how bad the pitch was. We know it was humid. Jamaica was tactically fouling Canadian players whenever they got into promising positions. Canada was also down, what, seven players? uh, And also dealing with a short turnaround. But with all of this in mind, we got a listener question here from Nick at NickY9766. Was this a bad result or should we be happy with the away points? So what is your assessment about this game, Alex? It's it's kind of tough to, to decipher. Yeah, and I think using that, I'll, I'll use two perspectives. I mean, obviously, there's the short-term perspective. You can't ignore it. If you're taking it one game at a time, it's it's a bad result, I'd say. You know, you, you wanted to get all three points. Jamaica is missing a lot of their star players. They were playing in front of zero fans. You're not going to have to deal with some of the hostilities you might face in one of those environments. So, yeah, it, it sucks to, to drop two points in, in a game where you can make up ground otherwise. But, I mean, long term, if you're going to take the other perspective, there's no bad away points in CONCACAF. I mean, you, you look around the region at some of the results that are happening there. There have been a lot worse. A lot worse could have happened in a game like yesterday. Say that that header in the second half from Flemings goes yeah. in and all of a sudden you're facing down the barrel of nothing. So, overall... You take it and then maybe the point will ultimately be judged with what you do in the long term. Do you win your home games? Do you steal some more on the road? Or is this just going to be a case of your your whole World Cup qualifiers where you look back and say, okay, maybe we should have turned two or three of those draws into wins in the first place. 
Yeah, listen, if they beat Panama on Wednesday, I feel like this becomes a non-issue because if you were to have assessed the situation prior to this window, you would look at this and say, all right, if Canada can come away with five points again from their three games, they've got 10 in total. They're averaging two points a game, which is more than enough to get a top three spot traditionally. Obviously, different circumstances now compared to when there was a hex. So for right now... You, you can parse through it and say, yeah, should Canada have maybe played with a little more incisiveness? John Herman mentioned this post-game that they just weren't really making the runs in behind, maybe weren't switching play fast enough. The pitch has a lot to do with that. The humidity has a lot to do with that. No, no Tejon Buchanan, which obviously makes a difference up front, but it really wasn't great. That all being said, Liam Miller puts that glorious chance away. A completely different conversation right now to be completely honest so that's that's the the juxtaposition Canada really finds themselves in but but if we look at the other side Alex here in in, in terms of what happened elsewhere in the Ocho Scott Hansen asked do you think we like the Panama win over the U.S. or do you think it's better for the U.S. and Mexico to run away with the first and second positions I personally believe the latter what do you say I'd honestly agree with you. I think uh, I was kind of discussing this the other day with someone, but it's if Mexico and in uh, the U.S. win, that's good for Canada, especially, I mean, Mexico, anytime they drop points, depending on who they drop it to, unless it's to the U.S., that's a bad thing. You, if Mexico beats everyone else, that's less, you know, less for Canada to, to have to do and ditto with the U.S., but clearly... Um, uh, with the performance like that yesterday from the U.S., you, you can't rely on them as much as you used to be. I think 2018 cycles showed that. I think so far this cycle, that's shown that obviously they also kind of did it to themselves, not going for it a little more in, in Panama considering the circumstances. But I'd have to agree completely. It would be nice for Mexico and the U.S. to do you favors uh, as much as you'd hate to rely on that. But Alas, the U.S. weren't able to to do it. At least Mexico held up their side of the bargain. Correct. And this is the thing. If you want to qualify for the World Cup, if that's your ultimate goal, it doesn't matter if you come first, second, or third. You just got to get in. Once you get in, and then if the other teams in your group, essentially in the top three, can split themselves from the rest of the pack and build a pretty sizable gap then that's obviously ideal. Now, you're dealing with a situation where after drawing against Jamaica and with Panama winning, you now have to beat them to jump past them and get back into the top three. You are at home. That's a good thing. You're getting players back, but it, it, it's a less than ideal situation. Let's be let's be real here. Um, we, we talked about this already, Alex, but D- Dan Clark pointing out uh, finishing has been a problem. Is it the players' tactics both something else? Um, I, I feel like... it's it's a very loaded question but uh, maybe we we can try to to examine this bit by bit here yeah i mean uh, the finishing question is is one we we need to explore i think if you look on paper other than that el salvador game where canada uh you know took things to el salvador there's been a finishing problem and it's it's almost frustrating because it's not like they're not generating chances you look at their xg numbers in every game they've played they've been pretty good uh, for the most part i think the their jamaica this jamaica game was their worst xg performance and they still got i think just under or ho- over a hair uh, over one xg so correct yeah most games you especially it's you, you score a, a goal or two a game you should win but you're looking at canada's xg i think they've got eight or nine xg at only five or six goals 
that, that's not enough to to win when you're you're averaging a goal per per game, and it's almost frustrating because the defense is doing so well. Yeah, you know, they're, they're only allowing one goal a game, and they've kept two clean sheets. You do that on most nights, you'd expect to win games, especially when you got Jonathan David, Kyle Aaron, Lucas Cavallini, all these players. Obviously, some of them are injured, but mm-hmm. you still have the firepower to win games. So, I mean, we can kind of dive into some of the problems we've noticed about why the finishing is struggling. But I think it's important to admit that there is starting to be a, a problem with Canada and goals as much as people, they don't want to admit it. Oh yeah, they're, they're, we've got the players. They're going to, you know, they're going to figure figure it out. I mean, since the Gold Cup, since that Haiti game uh, at the Gold Cup, other than that, that, that five minutes against Costa Rica, when mm-hmm. has Canada's attack looked like it was earlier in the year? And I mean, they're, they're playing better opposition. This is to be expected. But at the same time, Canada still has so much more to give. And it feels like we're, we're starting to realize that right now. On the plus side, that Mexico game, the chance creation was there, which I don't think we could have ever expected to say about a Canadian team going to Azteca and putting out what was it, 1.6 something XG from eight shots too, over 0.2 XG per shot. That's ridiculous. That's amazing for, for any team to do. When that happens, if you can do that consistently, even if you're missing the chances, because Davies obviously missed two sublime opportunities, Richie Larea did as well in that match. If you're getting in the positions to, to put those chances away, that's about 90% of the battle. The other 10% is actually putting them away. If that starts to become a, a trend over three, four, five games, then you start to wonder, okay, are we just not composed enough in front of goal? Or, you know, is the team you know, kind of lacking that, that, that killer instinct. Is it just simply a, there's no Kyle Aaron problem, at least in this window, because obviously he's their top scorer this year. I mean, you look at Alfonso Davies, the amount of times he was drifting inside and having two, three, four players sometimes marking him, trying to close him down. And then you, you, you're going up against a team that's kind of playing stubbornly and they're sitting deep. There aren't a lot of gaps between the lines. You're going to run into that situation. It, it's just the, the, the simple fact of the matter, but when you get opportunities like Miller, and I believe Davies also had a decent opportunity as well, you have to put those away. Because the very best teams in this region who qualify out of this region are very cutthroat. I think back to that Costa Rica match against the U.S. in New Jersey in, uh, what was it, 2017. And they win 2-0. They were outchanced. But, you know, they get two very good opportunities on the counterattack, put them away, and boom, they win 2-0. And that pretty much got them into the World Cup. That's what kind of got them over the hurdle and, and secured a top three spot. So... It's those situations where you have to do it and, and, and make a difference. On this subject, um, what did you make of, of Miller's performance as a whole? Because he did have the best chance of the match, if, if any of the listeners do recall, of course, uh, and I'm sure they will. He was playing on the right side, which is not traditionally his role at, at club level, even with the national team. He's done it a couple of times, of course. But I, I thought he had his moments. But I, I you, you have to say, Alex, if he had scored that goal... He probably starts garnering a little more. Should he maybe start to push for a starting position or at the very least more minutes? Because he obviously did just get a call up, um, you know, back into the team in this window. Honestly, I think it's too bad that he missed the chance. Just not obviously because it helps Canada win, right. but because it spoiled what was a pretty good performance for him. I think, uh, you know, up until that that chance, he was one of my standout performers up front if you look uh you know maybe someone like jonathan david was fading out of the match mm. someone like jonathan azoria wasn't always getting in the pockets that he's he's so good in alfonso davies he was getting chances but of those four i think liam miller was was starting to look like the better option he just had this intent when he was taking eyes 
on 1v1. He was getting to the byline. He was setting up cutbacks. I think he's the one who crossed it to or cut it back to Alfonso Davies for a really yep. good chance early mm-hmm. in the game. And he had a few other dangerous crosses. I thought he was doing everything he needed to do as a winger. But ultimately, your game gets defined by moments. And I think just, mm-hmm. you know, not necessarily missing that chance. Because, again, I said that online. I feel like you do have to give a, a goalkeeper like Andre Blake his due credit. Because while Liam Miller put the shot centrally, it was a fantastic save to react and just stick his arms out. And there's maybe him or Kaylor Navas are the only two. Maybe a Chowan is there. The only, you know, two or three goalkeepers in the region who make that save. Maxime Crepeau. But at the same, <laughs> Maxime Crepeau, true, honestly, with how he's been playing, you wouldn't put it past him. But yes, Liam Miller should have scored the goal. And it's unfortunate because they could have really gotten a win off of that and you take a win in jamaica you run home you're in fantastic position and it's it's unfortunate for miller because it ruined his his good game it's unfortunate for for canada because they they had their chance they had their their one chance i mean you know as you mentioned in 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 Concacaf, you have that one or two chance the game you can't miss it if you do it, it really you know, you, they almost they almost saw that when Jamaica ran up the other way and score almost scored off of a scrappy set piece. So, for for Canada, it was really unfortunate that Miller wasn't able to put it away for so many reasons. Really, it it, it was, and I was pleasantly surprised um, because I was thinking to myself when we saw the news that Junior Hoylet picked up a hamstring injury in, in in training in the build up to that game. I thought to myself, could this be ZBG time? Um, just because he can play as essentially an auxiliary winger. Um, he gives you that pretty much the same qualities that, that Miller was displaying in that game, that he can drive to the byline, he can set up chances. He's obviously very quick, so he can get up and down the pitch very easily. In a lot of ways, the perfect Larea replacement if he were to have started on the right-hand side. Um, but Miller, to his credit, I mean, he took the chance. And I'm sure, look, John Herdman is not going to be a prisoner of the moment. He'll he'll be aware of how strong that performance was and how he kind of did take the chance in a lot of ways. Whether or not it leads to starts is another matter because obviously Tejon Buchanan will be available against Panama on Wednesday. You imagine he's going to be favored to start again after having a few days off. But certainly, based on his form with Basel and now what he has shown in this game, Miller will at least be in the conversation for call-ups again, whereas he wasn't really up until, I would say, a couple of weeks ago, really. Sticking with the attacking theme here, Alex, uh, Vince Alvarado at Vince by Demand asked, is Jonathan David's ineffectiveness down to his deployment by Herdman, the system Herdman employs, or is he simply making the wrong decisions when he plays? Uh, I wrote about this post-match. I asked John Herdman about David's performances specifically. This is what he had to say. Some pretty interesting points here. Yeah, I mean, the effort he's putting in is is second second to none. I mean, the the effort I've seen from Jonathan is as a number nine, he's he's just given everything. And and I think the the, the tricky thing for John is he, he likes to play off someone, and you know, having Kyle around him is uh, is always the best balance for for this team. So he's had to shoulder a bit on his own and. You know, there was little link-ups with Azario you're seeing at the Azteca. I thought he's making runs that are unselfish and helping others. But he's always there in the box. He's always in and around where he needs to be. And uh, I thought his performance was steady again. So what do you think, all this considered, Alex? I mean, it's 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 the million-dollar question. If you're, if you're Canada, you got the co-top goal scorer in Ligue 1 right now, you're struggling for goals. You think, okay, you pull, you know, you have David, you fix that problem, but it's obviously not as simple as that. And I mean, I think it has to be frustrating for David because I'm looking at him. I'm not seeing necessarily a guy who's 
he, he's doing the right things, you know, exactly. fundamentally. He's mm-hmm. running in behind. He's tr- dropping deep. He's mm-hmm. holding up the ball. He's doing all the dirty, you know, all the dirty work for a striker. Right now, he's not scoring goals, and I think that ultimately is is, is almost as up to the system as, as much as it is. I mean, yes, there were a few chances where David looks off. I think there was one one-on-one in particular where you'd like him just to get a shot off instead of trying to cut it back and, and make something happen to that. But I just think for a striker, you know David's going to, you know, he's an unselfish player. If he needs to drop deep, he will drop deep. So if you want him to be your focal number nine, you set things up to, to, to help him. So, if if you if you want if almost if you're John Herdman, I'm looking back. I wonder if you really don't want Jonathan David to drop back. Could you not have put in two number tens underneath him and David Weatherspoon and Jonathan Azorio to kind of mm-hmm. offer more support right. and make sure David stays up the field? Obviously, that's me thinking in hindsight. I, uh-huh. I think heading into yeah. the, the the game, Herdman picked the right lineup. Mm-hmm. But you look back, looking to, into the future. Uh, now, do you wonder? Okay, if you're if David's not going to have a strike partner, do you offer him a number ten? Because or, or two number 10, sorry, because David's going to do that the work of a number 10, whether you like it or not. And yeah. you got to get him up the, the field. So I just wonder if, if, for me, it's more the setup and getting David into those killer positions because that's just how he is as a player. We almost pick and choose, I feel, like when to highlight the quote-unquote ineffectiveness because, as you said and as Herdman said, he's doing everything right. He is occupying defenders. He is doing unselfish work to unlock space for the others around him. Like, for example... If Mexico's defense wasn't so worried about him, Alfonso Davies wouldn't have been able to drift in centrally as much as he did and then filter in Jonathan Osorio for that decisive goal. Um, You know, David was still, you know, when those chances were coming into the box, he was still making runs to the back post or still making the right run. The ball just didn't reach him. It would reach Davies first or it would get cleared out by, by one of Mexico's center backs, whatever the case. And it was the same thing really against Jamaica. It may be slightly different circumstances just because they were out there trying to just completely disrupt Canada's rhythm whenever they tried to get some. But it it does lead to an interesting question. You mentioned potentially starting two number 10s behind David. Herdman mentioned that the fact that Kyle Lahren isn't there might have something to do with David's performances this month. Because if you'll recall, when they started together... Defenders found it very confusing as to how to react to it because one of Laren or David would drop deep, the other would stay up and kind of, you know, up with the defensive line to occupy the last center back. And then whoever was dropping deep was combining with the likes of Davies, you know, whoever the left sided midfielder was, whether it was Kay, Watherspoon, whoever. And then they were getting those triangles, unlocking space that way. And then David would dart into the box as soon as, you know, the, the center backs were running back. And then he was getting chances. Um, do, do you feel like maybe returning to just two up front in a, you know, standard 3-5-2 off the ball or, or you know, 4-4-2 off the ball is, is the way to go about it to maximize David's strengths? Or do you think that they should just keep going with it and just hope that, okay, Buchanan's inclusion uh, for Panama and potentially beyond, of course is enough to at least get Canada the goals they need to win games. I just think you have to recognize your personnel. I think if Kyle Laren's healthy, he's starting. I think he's obviously played well enough to, to deserve that that sort of, you know, lockdown role in the squad. But I think if right now, if you, you know, assuming Kyle Laren isn't going to play, say, for the Panama game, I'd like to see them, yeah, return to a two-striker formation or make you know make Jonathan David more of the focal point I think you have to decide what you want him to be because I just think in the current you know it was almost like a 4-3-3-esque setup in a 4-3-3 
unless you have guys underneath him that are going to get him the ball, he's going to drop deep. So if you're going to go to a two-striker formation, I'd honestly be open to throwing Tejon Buchanan and him up front together. If you uh-huh. recall in the El Salvador game, they did that, and they actually Jonathan David had his his best game honestly yeah. of the year. He yeah. was he was everywhere. He was he had a goal, he had an assist, but he was doing a lot of what Jonathan David does. So I think if you're Herdman, you just have to, you know look at, at what you want from David. You, you know, if you're going to keep things as you are, you're going to have David playing a bit deeper, which, you know, isn't necessarily a bad thing, but you no. just have to be okay with that. It's okay to your stri- for your striker to drop deep. But if you want Jonathan David in the box scoring goals, you're going to have to offer him support, be it by playing a Buchanan with him or, you know, getting creative and offering a, a Wotherspoon or someone who has played kind of second striker, even moving a Zorio up to a second striker as he used to play back, uh, you know, a few years ago for TFC mm-hmm. and, and going that route. But I just think you, you can't necessarily keep David in the same tactical role you, you are now if you want him to be the guy scoring goals for, for your team because that's just not how he is as a player. And I think you see that for Lille. Why mm-hmm. is he at his best when him and Yilmaz are up front? It's because, you know, they, they work so well when there's mm-hmm. that, 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 that's traditional number nine to do a lot of that, that work. And then David, you know, he isn't the focal point, uh, you know, n- number nine, or at least if you want him in the box scoring goals, like a traditional number nine, you can't deploy him like a number nine. You need support. Correct. Exactly. And, and this is why you, you almost have to accept David being, and, and, and this is, possibly a bit of an extreme example, but more like a Roberto Firmino type who will find those pockets of space and exploit them and, and allow others to, to drift in kind of undetected. Uh, or do you want it to be a penalty box presence and you, you tailor your tactics in order to, to get one or the other. And it's as simple as that. So if it doesn't work out, that's why really. So I, I guess to answer the overall question, it probably would be mainly tactical in terms of why David is, is struggling. Cause we know he has the quality to finish. Otherwise he wouldn't have five goals in his last four games for Lille entering the international break. Uh, let, let's switch gears a little bit, Alex, looking at the defense, um, Stefan Jordan at Weber 2009 asked uh, about your boy, Derek Cornelius here. Uh, how do you feel about Cornelius's performance yesterday? Did he earn himself the ability to be called up on a more consistent basis as someone who's been a defender of Derek Cornelius for a couple of years now? What did you make of his return to the fold? I mean, I was happy from what I saw of him. I think he did what he needed to. Obviously, you know, you don't want to just be blinded. Okay, there was a clean sheet. You know, they did their job on that sense. But I just think he, he brings this 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 presence to, to the back line. I mean, for example, you know, when he's on the field, you're not going to lose many aerial duels. He was mopping those up. Yes, yes. I think he won something like 10 out of 13 of his duels. That's what he does yeah. when he's on the, on the pitch. He, he will win balls in the air. I mean, we, we kind of discussed it a bit on Twitter. You, 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 you know, maybe you won't get, uh, say Scott Kennedy-esque play out of the back right. in terms of calmness and, and pressure but a that's as much about reps as you know him getting used to playing again after you know with the white caps where he'd play for three games and he'd go three months without yeah. playing and yeah, yeah. I mean personally from what I saw yesterday last time I guess I would have watched him play was whenever the heck is the last time he played for the white caps <laughs> probably three or four months ago because you know, what I notice is how much more composed he is on, on the ball when he has time. You can tell the quality is, is, is slowly starting to come through. Uh-huh. But for me, I just, you know, at least no matter what you, uh, you know, you know, no matter what you're going to get from him on the ball, which some days can be just long balls out. Some days it's a little more composed. You at least know you're going to you're going to win a lot of aerial duels. You're going to win a lot of crosses in the box. And to be honest, is there any other guy like that in the in the Canadian center back pool? I mean, 
not particularly. Kennedy isn't necessarily much of an aerial guy. Kamal Miller's more of a guy who likes to go to ground and, yep. and make 1v1 challenges. Yep. Daniil Henry is that that sort of guy, but he's a right-footed center back. Mm-hmm. They're not competing against mm-hmm. uh, each other. Alistair Johnson's definitely not an aerial threat, no. as you've mentioned a few <laughs> times. So having Derek Cornelius back there isn't the, the worst thing to have, say, when you're playing a team that's going to want to funnel the ball to the box and, and, and really you know, try to get, get things going in the air. Cause I think he offers a, a sort of presence that not a, any other defender has right now in Canada's back three. Exactly. And given how valuable left footed center backs are in the modern game, if you can have at your disposal at, at any given time, Kennedy Miller Cornelius as your three main options, that is a great place to be. Um, and for sure he was very good aerially. Um, he always has been positionally, pretty solid always has been on the ball perhaps he ends up making kennedy like strides in his game in that regard because before kennedy got call-ups he he was very flustered every time he was on the ball he almost did everything he could to get rid of it as quickly as he possibly could and didn't really adjust well to the pace of german football but then after the call-ups with canada you can see he's confident now to carry the ball forward and spray a long pass into the fullback marauding forward. Um, Perhaps Cornelius gets that same confidence in in a month here or so, and maybe now that he's back in the national team fold, that's even more confidence for him. And from a Canadian perspective, you hope so, because, again, that that gives you just another all-around weapon at the back to utilize. And and for sure, he's probably put himself back into the conversation for getting call-ups again, much like Liam Miller has, thanks to his form with Basel. Uh, FCP1992 asked, uh, did Herdman risk it today playing our stars on a bad field, knowing Panama is a must-win? Rotation conversations are always interesting, Alex, because I feel like we have the benefit of hindsight after results, but in that moment, I feel like you have to go for the win. And this Canadian team, given their mentality, based on everything that they have said to us over the last few months, <laughs> they go into every game thinking and knowing they can win. I feel like it wouldn't send the best message if they rotated as heavily as they did, unless they have to, which they obviously did yesterday. Well, I'll just say look over at the neighbors down south, the U.S. I mean, correct. Well, well, well I'll, I'll just preface this by saying yes, heading into the game, was Jamaica, I guess, a quote-unquote, a wounded animal where everyone was looking and saying, oh, this is a three points for Canada? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, myself, I thought Canada would find a way to get three points. I think it was reasonable to expect that. But, you know, this is away games in CONCACAF. There are no easy away games in CONCACAF. And I think the fact that Canada played what was still, yes, you're missing your, your you know, we could go down the list of guys you're missing. I don't have enough fingers to, to, to go, go down <laughs> and, and count, but... You still had a Davies and David and, you know, Osorio, uh, you know, Piet, close to a first choice midfield, a pretty Mm -hmm. first choice back line. And you still only got got out with the nil-nil draw. Why would you have wanted to rotate and risk losing and dropping a key point that not only you dropped the point yourself, but Jamaica, we're kind of discussing this on our third sub live show. It had Jamaica won, they only would have been within like two points of the play of the fourth playoff spot or something like that. Something if I'm like not that, mistaken. Yeah. that. Yeah. They're all of a sudden their campaign quality, you know, hopes are back on the rails and they're yeah. another team you have to worry about uh, re- re- immediately. So I think you, you have to await as much as, 
you know, seeing what happened in the U.S. where they dropped three massive points to Panama, that could honestly cost them in the long term, given that Panama is a team they're competing with right now. You, you can't risk going into these sorts of away games and rotating too heavily. I think the, the rotation balance was good where obviously it was forced, but resting Tejan Buchanan and Richie LeRae are going to be blessings in disguise because I think the fact that Panama had to play uh, in Panama, I forget where their first game was, but they're going to have to travel all the way up from Panama City, which if you, if you haven't seen the a map late, lately, it's quite the journey from Panama yeah. to Toronto. It's a few hours. <laughs> to have to deal with a, a fresh Tejan Buchanan and Richie Larea and possibly, you know, say, a, fingers crossed, a Kyle Laren or something like that. Canada's always going to have the, the depth advantage for those third games of, of these, these triple match windows. So I think as long as you strike a, a balance between keeping as much as your as many of your stars on the field as possible and rotating certain guys in who aren't able to to, to go those ninety minutes, I think that you know the the U.S. Panama game is an example of why rotation is so deadly. Because I mean, look, the U.S. rested their whole team and they got you know that's just an embarrassing one 0 loss to Panama. Where if they got a draw to Panama, as much as they wouldn't have liked it, that's a fantastic result. That's a result that helps them. So. Uh, you know, looking at the the rotation, I think rotation was was definitely not the issue here against Jamaica. No, it wasn't. And to continue on the U.S. point, I've said this a couple of times. Yes, they have a very deep player pool. Yes, they have some very talented players at their disposal. I still don't think Greg Perhalter has a single clue what his best eleven is. And part of that is because suspensions and injuries have interfered with all of their best players being available at the same time. But I can't remember the last time they named an unchanged 11 from one game to the next. They always make changes and look at how much it's, it's affected them. Yes, they won the Nations League, they won the Gold Cup, um, but but in qualifying, that's not always going to serve you well. You need to have some level of consistency there, um, which, which leads us nicely into this next listener question um, as we stick with the theme of, of selection and whatnot. Uh, Blair Donnelly asked, do you think Herdman made an error by calling in players who potentially could not play, like Laren, Hutchinson, Cavallini, etc.? Or do you feel that keeping the core players together, regardless of status, was more important for team chemistry? I, I feel like our the end of our last point, Alex, maybe answers that question, does it not? Oh boy, I mean, I, I think I'll, I'll add, because it's certainly something I've thought a lot about. I think I can't question, say, Herdman's approach in terms of you, you know, he brings smaller squads, but you you saw last window, they still managed to mostly do the job other than that Honduras game. So certainly I, I can't question his idea of bringing a core group. It's worked. Canada, there's a lot more stability there than, say, with like a U.S. if we're going to continue on that discussion. there's You know who Canada's big five are. You know when Canada's got a big game, you know who's going to be on the pitch for the most part. They've got that about them. What I just don't understand for Herdman is why he's so averse to throwing an ex some extra bodies in the camp because for me personally i just see it as a a win-win say we'll we'll use the the famous uh, our famous example richie ennin because you know we, we've been right. talking about that one i asked him about it mm -hmm. uh, during that original press conference yes richie ennin isn't familiar with the, the the canadian program he hasn't had a call up and i think it's four years to his to his it was to a u20 camp but what yeah. would have changed if he's the 28th man on this roster? At worst, nothing, nothing changes. He just trains. And in three months, he's at least used to the program. And if he's in better form, you have that. And B, if he comes to camp and plays everyone, you know, plays out of the, his skin, what does that mean? You have another player you can use 
right now. So if anything, I just don't know why Herdman isn't averse to adding new guys into his pool uh, of guys. As much as you don't want to say bring a 30-man squad, I say that's a bit overkill. Mm. I just don't get when you're dealing with so many injuries and you essentially only have a 21-man healthy squad, what's stopping you from from just at least supplementing the the roster with say a we'll use the Richie Ennen as, as an example. Yeah. There's so many other, you know, guys as much as you know, even if we're going to throw it out there, yes, Scott Arfield isn't playing right now or Theo Corbianu isn't playing right now, but at least throwing them into the mix could do something in the, in the long term or throwing a new name in. So I just don't understand why he's so adverse to, 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 to certain names not getting in and sticking with his old guys despite injuries. That that for is the strange one. It's like I'm having a conversation with myself. Didn't really need to have you on if, if we're just going to have these <laughs> these back and forth that aren't really back and forth. We're just agreeing with each other. But no, it, it's a very good point. I, I mean, especially when you look at January, February, when MLS is going to be out of season, um, chances are Herdman's going to rely on mainly European players for that window, barring maybe one, two, or three guys just to fill in the depth and whatnot. But... That's why bringing in someone like Ennen now, and I mean, this is maybe a bit more of an extreme example, but in the next few months, he could maybe be in the conversation. Someone like Stefan Mitrovic could could, could possibly come in too and then get settled into the program. Th- that also helps the player too, because then you know that, you know, Herdman is seriously monitoring you. You're going to be motivated by that. You get a taste of camp and then you're going to want to, you know, play your heart out to get back in there. And then by the time you potentially get that call up in January, February, guess what? You're already at least used to some of the tactical schemes. You're, you're, you've had conversations with the coaches, the players, you train with them, you, you build a rapport, you build an on-field rapport with them because chemistry is important in that regard. There are just so many benefits to it. So yeah, that would be probably the one major criticism you, you have, really the only, and it's not even a major criticism, it's a minor, minor flaw in what's been an otherwise very solid 2021 for Herdman and company, really. Um, Closing out the Jamaica section with this, uh, Stefan Jordan was playing Davies 90 minutes going to bite us with the Panama game coming up. Once again, benefit of hindsight. Um, feel like, listen, if, if Davies is good to go um, and he's not feeling a tweak in his thigh or anything like that, which I, I guess he did end up suffering in the first half, you, you, you got to play him 90 minutes. I mean, he, he's a game changer for you. I'm not worried about his fitness. I mean, the yeah. fact that well, you were, look at the beginning of the year, he was dealing with an injury and he still managed to rack off 270 minutes in like a week or something for yeah. Bayern or something week like that. Half, he's, think, yeah. he's, he's fit enough to, to, to play against Panama. I think ultimately, as much as you want to consider resting Davies, fitness aside, I just think you, you have to play him as much as he's available because you don't know if he's going to pick up a knock and have to go back to Bayern. Or, you know, he, there's just so much question about if he's always you always have that big brother looking over your shoulder. Let's just say with, with, yes. with Bayern. I, I think back to that U S game where he, he, he just, he made that one motion. He signaled yeah. for a sub and it just t- ticked off all the, the alarm bells at Bayern and they, they brought him back. So if you're Herdman is yeah. with Davies based on how they've, he's been handled and, I'll preface this by saying no, no problem with how Byron's handled him. He's a, he's a hundred million dollar asset. They want to protect their asset. I get where they're coming from, but when you're Canon, you have access to that asset. You have to use him as much as you can before he's not there anymore. And I mean, I I get, you don't want to run him into the ground. I I don't want to phrase it like that, but knowing him, as long as he's healthy and you know, 
we have to remember that for all this talk, all these national teams, they have heart meat monitors on these players. They're consistently tracking their fitness. They know who is able to go X amount of minutes. And they, you know, who is in X amount of minutes. It's not a, you know, when a guy like Alistair Johnson plays five games in a row without, without resting, there's a reason for it. So as long as his health track monitors and all this, the sports science they do, puts him up green you play him just because you know that Bayern might be watching over the shoulder and you don't know how long he'll he'll be there if something will come up and he'll he'll end up getting sent back there you go succinctly wrapped up by Alexander Gange Ruzik um let's move over to a preview of the Panama match here which is as I mentioned off the top a, a massive massive game now on Wednesday night um will be a BMO field, of course. They are coming back home now for, what is it going to be, three straight home games? Uh, obviously, Toronto this month, Edmonton next month, and what are going to be two massive games there as well. Uh, full capacity is allowed, and ticket sales seem to be going well since that announcement if you just peruse Ticketmaster, but that's never usually the, the best barometer, but we'll see. Maybe it'll be a pretty decent crowd on Wednesday night. Um, opening up with this here, um, Blair Donnelly, getting very much to the point, is a loss or draw on Wednesday viewed as a failure in this window? That that would give Canada, what, a maximum of three points, minimum of two, which would still have them in the hunt, but obviously less ideal than if they win, clearly. Yeah, I think a loss is a failure or a draw. I think you have to be okay with it, admitting that. I think at home, first of all, you can't afford dropping home points in 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 in, in the octo uh, no matter if you're playing mexico the u.s anyone you have to win all your home games and the fact that panama is right in front of canada this is a game where you can leapfrog them and put yourself you know in front of them for example this is just worth putting out there because i was doing some some research last night do you know if canada wins on wednesday they'll have the best home record in Concacaf this octo believe it or not despite that that home draw against honduras so if they can get a win here, get that, you know, top home record in, in, in the Octo. It's all obviously relative. It doesn't mean anything, but considering the formula to make the World Cup is win your game at home and draw away. If Canada has the top home record in CONCACAF and has drawn all their games away, all of a sudden you feel a lot better about yourself than you do, say, now or if they lose. So I think this is a must-win game on, on so many fronts, and uh, it's it's okay to admit that if you're Canada. You need to win. 100%. 100% you do. And, and the benefit of winning as well this Jamaica match that we just spent basically 35 minutes talking about becomes a little less relevant because then it's viewed as a solid point. You have 10, as I, as I mentioned earlier on, on the show, and you're sitting pretty nicely um, heading into November. So, yeah. But obviously, if they lose and or draw, um, the mood from post-Mexico compared to what post-Panama would be would be quite the contrast for sure. Um Looking at a potential lineup here, Alex, um, with Steven Vittoria, Richie Larea, and Tejon Buchanan returning, plus potentially Laren, Hutchinson, and Cavallini, maybe don't hold your breath on on those three, particularly given how it's gone for this window, um, along with Junior Hoylet as well, who was a late injury concern. Do you think Canada ends up going back to what we saw against Mexico, or do you foresee some sort of change, major change in the lineup? I think we probably see something similar to Mexico. I mean, I'll preface uh, the talk by saying I think I saw online today that Kyle Laren and Atiba Hutchinson returned to training in some capacity with Besiktas, so things mm. look a lot more promising on on that front. But even then, if they were to come, no, it's a cross con- it's a continental flight, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. 
wouldn't hold my breath. Lucas Cavallini, I think I'd personally just rule him out from what I've seen of him training with the white caps. It doesn't mm-hmm. look too great for, for him there. But with the, the options you still have, yeah, I think you can still go go for a pretty decent lineup. I think if you throw Crepo in goal, that's a, that's a given. I, obviously, Borian was ruled out for a reason, and Crepo's done the job and then some so far this camp. You look at your back three, you still got a fresh Kamal Miller, a fresh Steven Vittoria. And right. Alistair Johnson clearly doesn't, you know, believe in the idea of getting tired. So nope. you, you seven lungs. A, you have a fresh <laughs> Alistair Johnson. That's a first choice back three. You go up through, uh, you know, through the options. You have Alfonso Davies at, at wing back. Worst comes to worst, Sam Adekubi should still be in, in, in decent uh, condition. Uh, after you know only playing the one game this window you got a fresh Richie Larea on the other side so you got two fresh wing backs I think the midfield for me is going to be the most interesting one because I think Eustachio is a given he got yes. rested yes. for a reason but is Mark Anthony K good enough to go I have doubts just based on his injury history yes. and his his, his fitness mm-hmm. I think ditto with Jonathan Azorio so I think we could see something along the lines of Maybe do we see a Liam Fraser or Samuel Piet in a deeper role and Stefan Ustachio a bit higher up the pitch with the Wotherspoon in front of them? Possibly. And then I Could think we, we would see David up front uh, with, let's say, Tejon Buchanan kind of rounding out that 3-5-2 that, that can turn into a 4-3-3, 4-4-2 as we've been used to, to seeing from them this camp. Yeah, I, I agree with this, uh, especially Davies at wing back because, as we'll touch on here in a moment, Panama presents certain challenges that I think allow Davies to thrive in a more deeper role, let's say. I mean, he's obviously been playing a little further forward. I, I think playing out wing back for this game would be a lot more beneficial for Canada, for sure. And it also gets the best out of David, right? As we <laughs> spent a few minutes talking about, because then you just have the two up front, he can play off of Buchanan, it, it just works out very nicely. The, the midfield is interesting, though, for sure. Ashtakio, we know, is for sure 100% going to start. That's never been disputed. Um Case fitness is is the question mark. He tends to go 60, 65 minutes most of the time anyways. Um, and this will be the third game in a row where he'd be starting. That'd be quite the load on him. Um, the like for like is Watherspoon. Um, the, the, the third midfielder, should K not go and Watherspoon is the choice. I would personally go Fraser because it just gets you more ball progression and, and someone who's a little more comfortable in possession. Um, and I think it was, it was telling that, and I suppose game state had something to do with this. They wanted to go for the win and whatnot, but it was telling that Fraser came on for Piet against Mexico. Um, just in my opinion, at least to add another ball progressor onto the pitch with K coming off and the changes happening that way. Well, here, here I am thinking I was going to be all uh, quirky thing that I, I'd personally take Fraser over Piet if I had to choose, but I guess we're great on minds, the, Alex. Uh, great minds. Or I guess we're on the same boat. I, I will, you know, I guess to to kind of play the uh, the other side. I think Piet is still a good option to have. I of think, of course, yeah. His his ball playing and you know progression abilities have gotten a lot better, and they I have. think yeah. yes, he didn't look too too hot on the ball against jamaica but for you know basically on that surface unless you're already a good ball progressor you know it wasn't easy for anyone to to progress the ball on that pitch and i think playing at bima will make a big difference Mm -hmm. for piet in in that regard and i just i do think having him in the midfield is also going to add a bit of stability so i wouldn't mind seeing piet if it frees Ustachio up, because I would like to see maybe Ustachio play a little higher up the pitch, kind of like he did at the the Gold Cup when he always uh, he he sometimes had a, a Piet alongside him. Otherwise, for the Davies, another 
again, as much as you hate talking all the pitch this, the pitch that, the pitch is going to make such a big difference for having oh, a guy sure. like Davies at wing back because it's easier for him to make those deep progressions mm-hmm. when you're playing on a, a good surface and you can make runs and you know the ball is going to stick to your feet and you're not just wasting time building up in a slog and then you lose the ball and you waste your your, your, your sprint anyway. So I think Davies at wing back could be, uh, could be interesting. I think you let Buchanan have the free roll this time. He's so dangerous in that free roll. I think that could be fun to watch. Yeah, so let's get into the minutia of this now. Um, we basically picked the same 11. I, actually, I think we did pick the exact same 11, even down to Liam Fraser, of, of all people. But I, I think there's a reason we picked those exact 11 players, Alex, and in those exact roles. Because what challenges will Panama give Canada, given their solid start to the Yocho that is conducive to Davies playing at wingback, Buchanan partnering David, you know, Fraser potentially starting, all, all that stuff. I mean, Panama has been a unique challenge so far in the, in the Octo. I mean, heading looking back to the Gold Cup, I was always already very surprised by what I, I saw of them. They're a lot more dynamic mm-hmm. than they were a few years ago. I think you can kind of tell they've eased out that that older generation of theirs, and they've just invested in a lot of young, exciting Panamanian talents. Who some of them are playing in pretty good clubs in Europe, and we don't realize how deep this this Panama team is, at least compared to what I thought they were. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there are a lot, you know, on paper, you're expecting almost a Costa Rica-esque, you know, an older team that's going right. to try to slow down the game and, and play. But no, this Panama team is quite physical. And I think you, they showed that by taking on the U.S. Uh, 11 that they did in the, uh, in the in the U.S. win. The U.S. went for a pretty physical uh, MLS-based 11, and they right. still struggled to keep up with how physical and, 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 and you know, it intense Panama can be I think they're still quite a technical side but I think really looking at them their physicality and and how they can really you know try to physically dominate the midfield and and, and in transition is is really going to be an interesting threat to 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 Canada I think because of that it's gonna Canada needs to find a way to control the midfield because I think Panama's shown to be a lot better in that area of the field than anyone expected the, from them. And then, as right. usual, it's the, the typical Central American good in transition. They got speed. They will try to cut, hit you with low cutbacks and, 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 and those sorts of, sorts of things. So they're an interesting side. They are. They are very interesting. And, and surprisingly, or I guess not so surprisingly, if you've watched them enough, but they have some of the best defensive metrics in CONCACAF qualifying thus far. They, they are among the leaders in terms of fewest shots conceded per 90 minutes, um, expected goals against per 90 minutes. Um, really any major statistic you look at, they're among the top defensively. And one of the reasons they are is how they set up in possession mostly. Basically, their front five or members of their front five will push up and, you know, they'll they'll do their thing they'll you know as you said hit those low cutbacks they'll they'll exploit the flanks but then they'll keep five back to protect against counters and as a result they don't concede very many high chances or counterattacks at all i think mexico is the only team that really got more than one half decent counterattack against them so far in the ocho now canada's obviously a quality side uh (laughs) they have a lot of speed they could possibly do what mexico did and just blow the doors off them And part of the reason why they could do that is, and this is why you need to have a midfield trio, if you're going to have Davies in that deeper role and you're you're going to go up against a a Panamanian team that at least defensively will sit back while they're in possession, like they're they're not going to push too high up, um, 
getting those triangles to bypass a Panamanian press and then getting Davies into open space to run at what is going to be a slightly deeper sitting defense could be very, very helpful because once he gets going, it's impossible to stop him. <laughs> and, and you know, you, you just don't know what can happen, right? Especially if you have Larea marauding forward and you have Buchanan and Davies in transition or Buchanan and David, excuse me, in transition. You know, it, it could be lights out. It, I was a, a little concerned about what El Salvador could present because they gave Mexico a lot of problems at the Gold Cup with their pressing. And then Canada blew the doors off them within 10, 15 minutes at BMO Field. Could very well be the case here. But this is why I would probably go with that exact same 11 myself. Well, that's it. I think Panama, looking at how they play, again, like I said, I personally heading into this window or heading into this year, I thought they were more of a Costa Rica type, but they're they're like an El Salvador type, but almost better. They're, they're, yes. they're a finer tuned, more organized, more talented version of, yeah. of El Salvador. And that, that that's why they pose such risk. But I think if you're Canada, what you learned from that El Salvador game is, in heck, if you learn from that Mexico game, no one can keep up with you in the region in midfield if you deploy the right options and, and play through the middle. I mean, Mexico had what is it, an Ajax player, an Atletico Madrid player, and uh, and another La Liga player, and they still struggled to to play against uh, you know a, a an out of you know a Mark Anthony K who was playing didn't play his best game, a Stefanu Stakio didn't play his best game, and a Jonathan Azori who played his best game. Mm-hmm. So I think Canada has the midfield superiority over anyone, I think, especially against the a Panamanian team, like you mentioned. They're not necessarily going to play through the middle as much, but they're going to try to, you know, physically, you know, make things happen in the, in the midfield. I think if Canada can flex some of that tactical, technical superiority in the midfield, just playing short passes, getting Panama to kind of suck in and then get Davies and Buchanan going down the flanks and Larea to that effect. I think you could maybe find some, some spaces there, but I just want to see kind of exercise control in the midfield and really show that, that Panama, if yeah. they were going to want to play, they're going to have yeah. to, to fight through that and, 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 you know, take down some of that Canadian midfield superiority. Yeah, and listen, it's going to be cooler in Toronto compared to Kingston. The pitch is going to be much better, understatement, compared to what we saw at Independence Park. They have to play more incisively right from the start. If they do that, they should be able to win, really, because as you said, they have the technique and the pace to be able to take it to most, if not now, at least, uh, all the teams in the region, uh, if, if that game at the Azteca is anything to be believed. That is going to do it for us in this episode. want to thank you, Alex, so much for coming on once again on such short notice. This is your time now to uh, plug your work, uh, much like hopefully Richie Ennen uh, and or Liam Miller and uh, you know whoever else has staked their claim recently, you have done enough to uh, to come back on and you definitely have so uh, yeah this is your time now to promote anything you would like to promote well that big thanks for for having me always a pleasure to chat canadian soccer with, with you guys on the on the show i mean you can find me on twitter at alex gongaruzic at bts fan city bts recently started my own canadian soccer newsletter uh destroy and progress i know you'll like that yes. that one peter but destroy progress at dot substack.com for a lot of my bonus canadian uh, stuff and i mean for those who, who follow me i will actually uh, you said i think you and thomas are going to be at the the game at bmo field uh, we will. correct yes. well i will be joining you guys uh making the there trek out to, to toronto so we'll we'll have a nice little 
hello how you do up in the the press box and hopefully canada can uh, reward uh with a, a good performance so on that note I'll, I'll be this will you know a lot of canadian stuff coming for me this week in terms of the lead up and obviously the game uh, itself glad to hear it we need more of it and uh i am sure we will provide that in spades thank you everybody for listening we will reconvene next time after the panama match on wednesday <laughs>